Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the weekly UK true crime podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you very much for joining me today. Well, we almost didn't get there today. I had a bit of an incident with my dog managing to chew through my microphone, but I think we're now all sorted and we're ready to go. Before we start today's case, could I encourage you to head to our blog at uktruecrime.com to check out the latest blog about the treatment of young offenders in the UK system. It's something that's really important to me. The next piece is about young offenders institutions. So if you have any thoughts, please do contact me. You can always find me on Twitter at UK True Crime. Today, we talk about police corruption. It's a difficult topic as we are, of course, all grateful to the people who work in the police force. It's certainly not something I would like to do. And it's clearly an incredibly tough role that it's, it's probably very hard to understand for those of us not directly involved. There is misconduct at all levels in this institution and there always has been due to officers having access to information of value to criminals. But the scale of this is really hard to fathom, especially the more serious corruption. In March 2015, the BBC used a Freedom of Information Act request And they found that nearly 50 Metropolitan Police Officers, which is the largest of the 43 police forces, and 26 staff members have been suspended for alleged corruption in the past two years. Of the 47 officers, 11 were convicted. A total of 222 officers were suspended between 2012 and 2014 with alleged corruption cited as the main reason. The Met said that suspensions did not imply guilt, but all allegations were taken extremely seriously. Maybe it would help if this information was more widely available. But accurate information about the prevalence of police corruption is really hard to come by, since the corrupt activities tend to happen in secret, and police organisations, quite frankly, have little incentive to publish information about corruption. I'll return to this topic briefly at the end of today's show. Today we go back to May 2007. May 2007 was a very warm month in the UK for change. Manchester United had just won their ninth league title and Chelsea won the FA Cup. Now, as a supporter of the mighty Leeds United, that really is hard to say. What a terrible season. The UK singles chart was topped by Rhiannon and Jay-Z with Umbrella. Whatever happened to them, huh? In 2007, PC Mesut Karakis was on duty behind the public counter at a police station in North London. Unmarried and a Turkish national, Karakis lived with his parents in nearby Hackney and he'd been a police officer for two and a half years. The calm of the police station was shattered in the early hours of Sunday the 13th of May when PC Karakis was viciously stabbed in a seemingly unprovoked ambush. In what must have been a terrifying moment, a young black man had leapt over the counter and knifed him in a random attack, leaving him bleeding from his wounds. The man had escaped and Caracas was rushed to hospital, although luckily his wounds were non-life-threatening. Caracas managed to provide a detailed description of his attacker after he was released from hospital and four suspects, including a boy aged 15, were arrested. However, all were later released without charge. Caracas was based at Muswell Hill Station in North London, which is the same location where another 
officer, Constable Keith Blakelock, works before he was killed by a mob in the Broadwater Farm riots in Tottenham in 1985. Following the stabbing of Caracas, Met Police Commissioner Sir Ian Blair used his experience to again highlight the very real dangers faced by officers on a daily basis. But officers investigating the attack were puzzled. They began to question PC Caracas's version of events after it emerged there was no obvious suspect on CTV footage from the security cameras covering the entrance to the police station. Caracas was suspended while the matter was investigated by the Met Police's Department of Professional Standards on suspicion of perverting the course of justice. As they looked into the matter, it was suggested that rather than being attacked by a stranger, as he had claimed, he'd actually stabbed himself with a pair of scissors, then lied about what had happened. It could just have been an attempt to gain sympathy, although the investigating team also suspected that it was a ploy to divert attention away from a separate probe into claims he had taken a neighbourhood watch car for his own use and this was still under investigation. After Caracas had been suspended for two months on full pay, the story was leaked to the UK media by a colleague who was very unimpressed with Caracas. As they do, the media turned up on his doorstep in Hackney, East London. Caracas's mother answered the door at their home and she said she spoke no English, but she managed to say that her son was on holiday. Caracas then emerged from the family's ground floor flat to say, I've done nothing wrong. My name will be cleared, and the truth will come out. He added, I'm not prepared to go into it. There is an investigation, and at the end of it my name will be cleared. Asked whether his initial version of events, that he was stabbed, had been correct, he added, Yes, is absolutely correct. A source close to the investigation briefed the media, telling them that Caracas had become obviously depressed since the allegations had surfaced. They continued, He is upset about what has been said because he's in the dark too. He's not coping with it at all well. He's never been arrested, but he is suspended pending the outcome of the inquiry. Internal investigations such as this can go on for months. He's standing by his version of events. As I mentioned, Prior to the stabbing, Caracas was already under investigation for the alleged unauthorised use of a forced police car at Haringey Police Station. A Scotland Yard spokesman said, The DPS is also investigating a separate matter involving the same officer regarding an allegation of unauthorised use of a vehicle. It will be inappropriate to discuss the matter further while the DPS investigation is going on. Caracas came from a tight-knit community and he stayed in close contact with his friends from his school days. Two years later, on the 25th of July 2009, Caracas and some of these friends, Jamie Lowe, Richard Darko and Ijaro, they were out drinking at the Glassworks pub in Islington, North London. When they were there, they managed to get into an argument with a, a man not part of their group, a guy called Shane Summerhays. It was a hot, still London night. When Shane left the pub, unbeknown to him, he was followed. He headed through the Chapel Market area. I don't know if you know it, but it's, a, it's an outdoor market which during the day is full of traders sending fruit, vegetables and other goods. It's got no airs and graces and it's probably as close to the TV programme EastEnders as you can find in London nowadays. As Shane walked... Caracas and his cronies launched a cowardly attack on Shane. 
the four of them attacking him brutally with a baseball bat, leaving him in a pool of blood with multiple injuries. Disturbed by passers-by, the four raced back to their car and made their escape. Shane was not in a state to walk or drive anywhere. Luckily, the same passers-by that disturbed the four of them in the gang called an ambulance and he was rushed to hospital where he needed treatment to stem the heavy blood loss followed by a number of stitches. As a serving police officer, Caracas knew this wasn't something that could just be brushed under the carpet. When he was back at work, he accessed the police national computer and looked at the incident report made at the scene by colleagues. As you know, this is illegal. Um, As a serving police officer, you can't look at the police national computer for your own affairs. Caracas noticed that there was CCTV footage showing the gang fleeing in their car and realised that something needed to be done to stop this investigation. Printing off four copies of the investigation report, he shared it with his friend Lowe. Lowe knew that he needed to get Shane to drop the case and thought a cash offer would be his best bet. Lowe posted an envelope through the letterbox of Shane Summerhays asking him to drop the case against the four men. While this was ongoing, just after this assault, the gang, joined by Gokun Kuru, another friend from school, started to plot their next crime. They had one motivation, which was money, and they hatched a plan involving kidnapping a bank manager, a manager at Lloyd's TSB Bank. They planned to snatch and torture him and his wife in the hope of stealing over £100,000. Assuming success... They planned to replicate this all over North London, which would secure, as they saw it, their financial futures. On the day of the attack, the five men planned to stage a roadworks scene near the bank manager's home, which would act as a distraction for the kidnap. The gang began observing their first intended victim's home in August 2009. They posted flyers on trees and car windscreens outside the house in Barnet, North London, announcing planned roadworks the following month. Sandbags and orange traffic barriers were placed on the street. In September, the gang hijacked a delivery van and showing just how much they meant business, they warned the driver that if he didn't comply, he would be shot. They changed the van's number plates, intending to use it during the kidnap and they then stored it in a safe place. The gang did thorough research and took precautions. Gloves were to be worn, hard hats were worn as disguises, and the conspirators made sure they knew where the CCTV cameras were, and they planned to take the necessary precautions to avoid being spotted. Now, have you ever seen the TV programme The Wire? Caracas and other members of his gang were big fans of this show, and they often spent their downtime discussing tips on avoiding detection the sort of thing that are suggested by the drama series. One of the golden rules that any follower of The Wire will tell you is not to talk in the car. Don't talk in the car. Lowe tells the gang just that, but despite being avid followers of the show, they didn't pay heed to his warning. Now, this was a particular problem for the gang, as unbeknown to them, the Met Police were finally on to Caracas, and they had actually in fact bugged his car. They were tuning in to all of their conversations. 
Listening in disbelief, the investigation team heard references to will the female scream and let's assume that the male will remain calm. Transcripts of the recordings reveal chilling details about his plan. Speaking in gangster slang, he called friends bruv and blood, even referring to his Met colleagues as feds. In one conversation, he said, When it comes to taking them out from their yard, yeah, I say we put them in duvets and shit. We carry them on the shoulders of two people. A few days later, the officer told an accomplice, If we get him in the house at 5.30, we're only going to have maybe an hour and a half blood, at most to be questioning him and shit. Investigators heard them planning the route, what time they should commit the offence when there'd be less police on the street, and also more talk about the CCTV cameras and which would be looking at them. The details of the plan clearly showed the gang were very comfortable using violence, with the victims planned to have their mouths taped over, their hands tied, and, well, people with balaclavas would be coming through their door, terrifying them. By October, the police had enough information and made their arrests. Raids on the gang's home in East London and Essex recovered balaclavas, masking tape, a list of banks and a van with a false reg. Police are also convinced they had access to two guns. They also found a list of banks, all of them in the North London area, and a list of names of potential targets so they could carry on with the robberies after the success of this one. The gang were arrested and charged. Caracas, now living in Leytonstone, East London, was suspended from duty from the police force and dismissed in February 2010. In autumn 2010, the trial took place at Blackfriars Crown Court in central London. Caracas was charged with conspiracy to kidnap with childhood friends Jamie Lowe, 24, Ayo Rowe, 30, Gokunkuru, 24 and Richmond Darko, 25. He pleaded guilty and also admitted inflicting grievous bodily harm and interfering in that investigation. The ex-police officer also pleaded guilty to misconduct in a public office. Caracas, Lowe, Rowe and Darko all admitted assault. In October 2010, sentencing the gang at Blackfriars Crown Court, Judge Aidan Maron said, Your collective activity was planned professionally and systematically. No one listening to the probe material will forget the cold, callous way you behaved. Caracas received 10 years for conspiracy to kidnap, two years for misconduct in a public office and one year for assault, with the sentences to run consecutively. He did not visibly react to the sentence. Judge Maron told him, You are the principal in this conspiracy. About this no one can have any doubt. Other gang members also received heavy sentences. As well as the kidnap charges, Darko, Lowe and Rowe also pleaded guilty to assault, with Lowe also pleading guilty to perverting the course of justice over the attempt to persuade the witness to drop the charges. Darko was sentenced to 11 and a half years in prison. James Lowe was sentenced for 11 years, the other row for 8 years and Kuru for 7 years. Caracas and the gang weren't happy with their sentences and a year later, in June 2010, 
they took their case to the Court of Appeal in London, arguing that their sentences were too harsh. This bid was rejected, and their sentences stand. The Met Police took a lot of criticism following this case for not picking up on his wrongdoing sooner and also going back to basics for allowing him to get through their vetting procedures. However, the Met robustly defended the way they'd acted and their vetting procedures. Five years after the conviction, Detective Superintendent Chris Robson of the Directorate of Professional Standards went on record to explain his bemusement as to why Caracas went bad. He was asked about the case in 2007 and also suspicions of links to two major drug dealers and also Turkish organised crime in London. Robson noted that the people that Caracas had committed the offence with were nothing at all to do with Turkish organised crime or with drugs. They were his friends from school days. As he said, they were clean skins. They'd no previous criminal convictions against them. He added, Caracas was a uniformed officer, a beat officer, and he moved around a couple of stations ending at Greenwich. There was nothing about him. I would not say he was a truly exceptional police officer, just pretty much your average police officer. It's a very difficult set of circumstances to explain, and I think it's something which will puzzle me for the rest of my service. I read in the Spectator magazine from March 2015 recently. It started with the following. Imagine you lived in a country which last year had 3,000 allegations of police corruption. Worse, imagine that of these 3,000 allegations, only half of them were properly investigated. Because for police officers in this country, corruption was becoming routine. Imagine that the police increasingly used their powers to crack down not on criminals, but on anyone who dared speak out against them. What sort of a country is this? As you'd have guessed, this was referring to the UK. Furthermore, a report from HM Inspectorate of Constabulary, which investigates and reports on the police service, went on to deliver some even more shocking news. Nearly half of 17,200 officers and staff surveyed said that if they discovered corruption among their colleagues and chose to report it, they didn't believe that their evidence would be treated in confidence and they would fear adverse consequences. This appalling lack of protection for whistleblowers, often amounting to persecution I guess, has, some would argue, become commonplace through the public services creates a climate in which dishonesty and malpractice have at least the potential to flourish. Nobody knows the scale of corruption in our police force. However, it seems to me that the real work that needs to be done is to move much more away from behind desks and reconnect with their communities. We also need to see much more transparency. On too many occasions, you you can't get hold of the information you need, or police officers provide cagey answers. They often hide behind data protection and privacy, which just makes them less accessible and ultimately less trusted by their communities. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the weekly UK True Crime podcast, and I look forward to talking with you again next week. Bye for now.